We are currently preaching through the New Testament book of Acts, and so Acts 5 is where we're going to be today. So if you have a Bible or a device, you can go ahead and turn or swipe to Acts 5. Otherwise, you can also follow along on the screen behind me if you want to do that. So the book of Acts is recording the beginning of Jesus' church, how Jesus' church was formed, what's important to Jesus' church, and what's clear thus far is that the priority of the church is Jesus himself. Jesus' death, his life, and his resurrection. So his followers, his church, can't stop talking about Jesus, even when it gets them in trouble and puts them in danger. And so they are fixated on Jesus. Now, this emphasis on Jesus also means people are not focused on themselves. They're not focused on advancing themselves. They're not focused on advancing their little kingdoms themselves. They are focused on Jesus' kingdom alone, on advancing the gospel. And we use that word a lot here at Center Church. What I mean by gospel is Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this focus by the early church on Jesus also acknowledges that all power, all authority are found only in Jesus. Now, we might wish that we were powerful, but any power we might think we possess is simply a mirage. Power, true power, is only found in Jesus. And the early church was keenly aware of this reality. Their hands were used to miraculously heal people. And it would have been really easy for them to take credit for doing that. But they are so explicit. It's not me. It wasn't me. It was Jesus. It was his power. It was him working in this way to heal this person. And so they were insistent to point to Jesus over and over and over. And today we're going to see their trust in God's power in the face of troubles. So we're going to look at like 25, 26 verses today. So this is a big chunk that we're looking at today. So I've tried to break this up. We're going to look at it in three different chunks. So let's read the first uh, chunk of verses here beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Okay, so Jesus' followers, 
because they had been preaching about Jesus' resurrection, had been thrown into prison, okay? And that's what was leading into this story, okay? So they're thrown into prison because they are teaching about Jesus. And then we read, they no longer are in prison. So let me make a few contextual comments here about what's going on. So verse 17 refers to the high priest, okay? So the high priest in Israel would basically be the leader of religious life in Israel, okay? So then it refers to the Sadducees, okay? These individuals are likely part of a council or a group of people called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is basically like the Supreme Court of Israel, but even more expanded. They're overseeing kind of political and judicial and religious life in Israel, so they, they governed many aspects of life in Israel. Now, the Sadducees are kind of the majority religious party that make up this Sanhedrin. So the Sadducees, and oftentimes maybe if, if you grew up in church, you maybe have heard more about the Pharisees rather than the Sadducees, and, and they were kind of opponents, okay? So think our political system, right? We've got Republicans and Democrats, so here... In the religious life of Israel, you've got Pharisees and Sadducees, and they kind of would go at one another at times. Now, the Sadducees are brought up here because of a theological belief. And that belief is they did not believe in the resurrection. Okay? They didn't believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. They didn't believe anyone else would resurrect from the dead either. Okay, so... Hold that to the side. We're going to come back to this idea of resurrection in just a moment, okay? Then it says in these verses, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Okay, we don't know the exact nature of this angel, okay? An angel can come, come in a, a number of forms, okay? So we don't know kind of how this angel presented themselves. Was it a spiritual being? Maybe. Was it a jailer? Maybe. We don't know exactly how this, this uh, angel presented themselves, but it does kind of provide a reminder of a verse later on in the New Testament. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So there's this reality, reality that we could be walking through our lives at times, right, and we are encountering angels, and we don't even realize this in some sense. And so the Bible is just calling people who trust in Jesus, Christians, to say, hey, just be aware of this reality. You could be encountering angels at a time when you, you would never expect it, right? And this is probably true for Jesus' followers in prison, that they would encounter an angel there. Ultimately, what we know, though, is that God is the one who breaks them out of prison, and then it's really curious, he tells them to go right back to do the very thing that got them into prison, right? Go and preach about Jesus some more. And then I want us to notice the way it's phrased. Speak to the people all the words of this life. Okay, so life. This isn't a common reference to Jesus or the gospel. You're not going to read through the Bible and see Jesus being referred to as life over and over and over, or the gospel being referred to as life over and over. But this is helpful to us as we think about what's going on here in this section of verses, okay? So what I want to do is I want to 
pull back here for just a second, and I want to look at what's going on in Acts 5, and I want to compare it to what was going on at the end of Jesus' life as well, okay? As Jesus was dying and then was going to raise from the dead, I want to compare what's going on here in the jail because I think it's communicating this idea of resurrection to us, okay? All right, so Jesus, before his death, was arrested, right? And here we're reading about Jesus' apostles being arrested as well. That happened previously in chapter 5. It said that Jesus was suffered and buried, okay? Jesus' apostles here have suffered, and they are, in a figurative sense, buried as well, right? They're put in a place where people go to die, in a prison, okay? In both cases, there were guards. Guards stood at Jesus' tomb. Guards stood at the prison cell of these apostles, Jesus was raised at dawn despite the guards being present. Jesus' apostles are figuratively raised at dawn. They are set free from this this death-filled imprisonment, okay? And so they are figuratively raised despite there being guards. And in both cases, there are angels there. What you find in the Bible over and over is that things are going to continually come back to Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. Okay, because that's the climax, that's the pinnacle of the Bible. Okay, and so we want to continue to see how does the biblical story keep driving us back. And so that's part of what I, I want us to be able to see here is that these things pop up over and over and they're calls back to us or calls for us to go back to Jesus and to see him in all parts of the Bible. So the reference to life here in Acts 5 is used as a contrast to death. Go speak life, okay? We're not speaking death, we're speaking life. And it heightens the emphasis on resurrection. This is what the religious leaders detested. This is what Jesus' followers couldn't stop talking about. In Jesus we find true life. Not just kind of a cheap form of life, but we find true life. And so we see this incessant prioritization and callback to Jesus' resurrection. It's vital. It is crucial in all of life. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a bit. So following this, and on the next day, the religious leaders go to get Jesus' followers from the prison. But they don't find what they're looking for. Right? The guards are there. The prison is locked, but there's no prisoners for them to come and get. And then someone informs them these individuals are back in the temple, and they're teaching again. And so Jesus' followers are brought back in for questioning again. But notice here this line that we read. It says that they were not brought in by force because they feared the people. Okay? So... The religious leaders were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they're being very careful in the way in which they're moving forward in this process. Okay, let's move on. Next session here, Acts 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you, not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, 
and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Okay, so Jesus' disciples are arrested again, right? And they're brought in for questioning. So the, rigi- the religious leaders are exasperated, right? Like, we told you not to do this. Why do you keep doing this thing? And then they say something really interesting. They say, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they're accusing Jesus' followers of trying to place the blame of killing Jesus on them. So what I want to do is I want to go back to the gospel of Matthew. And we're going to read what these religious leaders stirred up in the crowds of Israel around the time of Jesus, just before his crucifixion. This is what the crowds were saying. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and, our, and on our children as well. So this is exactly what they wanted. They wanted Jesus killed. They wanted Jesus' blood on their hands. They were so confident in, in walking out this process, right, that they even said, put the blood on our kids' hands as well. And so you've got to think what we're seeing transpire in Acts 5 is there's a bit of buyer's remorse going on. Maybe they're starting to see a bit more clearly. But they've got a choice here, right? They, they could admit they're wrong. They could say, all right, we see what you're doing. We see the power that's contained in your prayers for people. We see the movement of Jesus that's happening. We were wrong. They could go that route. Or they can also blame shift. And what we find is that they're very much like Adam in the Garden of Eden. When God comes to the Garden of Eden and he says to Adam, what have you done? And what does Adam say? He says, that woman. Horrific. Blame shifts his responsibility onto his wife. And that's what we see going on here. The religious leaders are feeling the heat. And you can feel the temperature rising. In the midst of all this, there's this exchange that reminds me of parenting my kids. The fact, like, I will tell them over and over to not do the same thing, right? This happens every day. Okay, this is just part of parenting. I realize that, okay? But there's this building frustration with these religious leaders that comes with this fact like they're saying, don't teach. Don't teach about Jesus and his resurrection. And what did Jesus' followers do? They disobey. And they say to these religious leaders, 
we must obey God rather than men. So there's no give in Jesus' followers. Now, we have to understand that these are the same men who had not long ago hid from these same religious leaders. They found a room after Jesus died, and they locked themselves in this room so that they would not be found, so that the same thing that happened to Jesus would not happen to them. These followers of Jesus were terrified of these same people, of what the religious establishment might do to them. But no longer, right? They are confronting this face to face and saying, we will not obey you. This actually provides a ton of credibility to Jesus' resurrection. Something had to happen. That these individuals would be cowered in fear in the fetal position, locked in a room, scared of these individuals, and now they're walking into the fire, right? They're not asking to suffer, but they're willing to suffer. We can also affirm how these self-righteous authoritarian individuals, the religious leaders, would respond to this rebuff by Jesus' followers, right? It's going to make them angry, for sure. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But Jesus' followers don't relent. This is what they say. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So just a couple of comments here about this section. So first of all, notice the focus again on resurrection. God raised Jesus, okay? What's the sermon they have to preach? It's resurrection, right? They've been saying it over and over, but just in case you didn't hear it the first 439 times, right? God raised Jesus. We have to see, as 21st century Christians or people maybe who are exploring the Christian faith, we have got to see how incessant Jesus' followers are to keep coming back to this concept of resurrection. But not just to observe that, but then to understand how crucial resurrection is for the Christian life. And the result of this is that the resurrection has to be something that profoundly shapes our everyday lives. Or maybe I should say it this way. Jesus' resurrection is intended to profoundly shape our everyday lives. This isn't just a concept we talk about on Sunday morning and then forget about it for the next six days. That's not what it's intended to be. When we wake up every morning and we feel this sense of death, and death can be felt in a lot of different ways. Death, we can feel death, a sense of death, in a long list of tasks we need to do, or maybe overwhelming responsibilities that we feel in our life, or maybe it's unhealth in our body, or marital or relational conflict, or maybe it's war in this world, or depression, or mental health struggles that we or someone we know is experiencing, or maybe it's the death of a loved one. 
we all feel death in a sense. And we need to be pulled out of this pit of despair. The brokenness that sin causes in this world is heavy. And it is dark. What can overcome it? Discipline? Rigor? Hard work? Maybe. Maybe for a couple days. Maybe for a couple weeks. But then we get tired. And we get discouraged. And we despair. Who can overcome the darkness of death? The one who went into a grave and then walked back out of it. Jesus is the one who overcomes this reality for us. Every single day of our lives, there is hope amidst hopelessness. It's possible. Life is greater than death. The light does invade the darkness, and we're reminded of this every single morning as the sun chases away the darkness. Resurrection is real, and we are intended to be made new every day for the reality of the resurrection to invade our own hearts and whatever we face in that day so that we can be people amidst a world full of hopelessness, walking in the light of Jesus, knowing his peace, filled with his hope. Now, I am not advocating fakery. I'm not saying, all right, let's just put on a plastic smile. Life is hard. Grief is real. Tears will be shed. And Jesus is greater. And Christians are intended to allow the powerful reality of resurrection to pervade our lives. And what we see in these followers of Jesus in Acts 5 is that the resurrection of Jesus is blowing out of them. There is a boldness in their lives that is supernatural, that does not make sense. The religious leaders are greatly perplexed by what they see in these men. Okay, so resurrection is not just a theological concept. It's intended to grab hold of our lives and to, be, and to mark our lives in profound ways. All right. They also say here in this section, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So in one sense, this pokes at these religious leaders because it's another explicit statement about their guilt. They killed Jesus. But there's rich theology here as well. Yes, they were guilty of hanging Jesus on a cross, but Jesus' willingness to hang on the cross also means that he takes upon himself the guilt of anyone willing to place their trust in Jesus. Jesus became cursed. The Bible says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so Jesus became cursed for anyone who will trust in him. And in that, what it means is he takes the curse of sin, our curse of sin, upon himself. Even for these wicked religious leaders. 
This is an invitation for them to repent. Repentance basically means turn to Jesus. Turn away from sin, turn to Jesus. It's an invitation for them to receive forgiveness, to be forgiven of their sin as well. And why do I say that? Why am I confident that this is true for them as well? Because Jesus, when he hangs on the cross, he looks at those killing him and he says, he prays to his father and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is unreal. How does someone pray for their murderers? the best news in the world by far will they receive it is the question will they take that gift being given to them ultimately no they won't okay and then at the end of these verses we read God gives to those who obey him Okay, so we talk a lot at Center Church about how the Christian faith isn't about what we do, okay? We're not saved by our works, but by Jesus' works for us. But then, here's the reality. We can run into some of these statements or verses in the Bible that seem to suggest that maybe our salvation is predicated on our works more, that obedience is a bigger deal, that it's more crucial to our salvation. So when it says, God has given to those who obey him, Right? That might seem to suggest, oh, I need to obey so that God will give me grace, forgiveness, or whatever it might be. Okay, so I want to let the Bible push back on this because you never want to create theology off of one verse. Okay, You want to let the whole of the Bible together create the theology. So I'm going to just let one part of the Bible push against this. So Romans is a great letter in the New Testament written by someone named Paul who we're going to bump into significantly in the book of Acts in not too long. Romans is full of tons of rich theology. It has a really interesting beginning and ending. So this is kind of a bookend statement of the book of Romans. Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26. Okay? This is the very beginning, very end of the book of Romans. And it speaks in both of those spots about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Obedience, at its core, is believing the resurrection of Jesus. That's what obedience is, at its core. It's believing that this is vital to all of life. So none of us can just wake up someday and determine we will follow all of God's commands. God gave us the Ten Commandments and he gave Israel's failure to prove to us no one is going to get to heaven by following God's commands. No one can do that. But Jesus did do that for us. And that's why the call to obedience is a call to faith, primarily. A call to trust in the one who perfectly obeyed for us. And as we trust in him, then he begins to form us. Okay? 
And this is true wherever we find ourselves in the Bible. We need to be sure that we're not predicating salvation on how well we keep God's commands. We all stink at it, okay? All of us do, myself included. I'm at the front of the line. So we need to get the equation right, okay? I know we've got a couple math teachers here, so you can talk to me afterwards if you want about this, okay? Okay, so here's this equation. Grace plus faith plus works equals salvation. That is wrong, okay? Hear me clearly. That is wrong. That is not how this equation works. The right equation is grace plus faith equals salvation plus works. Works flow out of us being approved by Jesus. Many of us have grown up thinking that salvation is based on our works. And once we clean ourselves up enough, then Jesus will accept us. But in that way of thinking, the works come before the salvation. That is not biblical Christianity. It's not. Works flow out of Jesus' approval of us when we didn't deserve it. That's biblical Christianity. We have nothing good to offer God. You'll find that in the book of Romans as well. There's nothing good in us. What's good in us is Jesus when we trust in him and when he begins to form us and shape us. Okay, moving on, last section, verses 33 to 42. When they heard this, they were enraged. Okay, when they preached the message of Jesus' resurrection, the religious leaders were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, kind of, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Okay, so first of all, we've got to look at the anger of these religious leaders, right? Why are they so angry? So we've already talked about how they feel superior. They feel self-righteous. They look at Jesus' followers and they're like, man, those, those guys are really common. They are unimpressive. And they're talking about Jesus. Yet, there's this reality, these unimpressive men are doing things that we are unable to do. The religious leaders feel 
like they obey God to a much greater extent than Jesus' followers do. They feel like they have more zeal than Jesus' followers. But then there's also this reality that Jesus' followers won't listen to them either. They're the religious establishment. If they're going to be following the religion of Israel, then they have to fall in line with what they teach. But these men are saying they've chosen to listen to God, not to these men. And the religious leaders, they they just don't want these followers of Jesus to talk about Jesus' resurrection. And in that, they don't like hearing of their guilt in Jesus' death. So these religious leaders can't conceive how these uneducated fishermen possess something greater than these teachers of the law. They look at them and look down on them because they're unimpressive. They're common. They look at their education compared to Jesus' followers and they're like, clearly we are far better than these individuals. Salvation's not based on education. So at the core of their anger, the reality is, what they're really angry about is there's, there's too much grace. They are furious about grace. Grace is too good. It's too welcoming. It's too kind. It's too patient. It's too forgiving. They are enraged by God's kindness, by God's healing. We talked about this in previous weeks. What is wrong with these religious leaders? That they want to put a stop to sick people being healed. What's wrong with that? Clearly, there's something else going on that's enraging them. It's not just the healing, right? It's the name of Jesus. It's all that Jesus represents. And at the core of Jesus is grace. It's a welcome that's undeserved. And the religious leaders want to to base welcome and acceptance on following certain laws. There's a way you get in, and it's looking like us. That's how you get in. Okay, so then we've got this wise teacher, Gamaliel who helpfully guides his council members. So he's watched over history certain people who've risen up and said they are something, but then they die and their movement dies with them. And his thought then is if this whole deal is legitimate, if all of this is from God, well, they're not going to be able to stop it anyways. And so just cool your jets. Just wait and see, right? Will it remain? Will it persist? If it's of God, we can't do anything about it. But if it's not of God, it'll die. And here we sit in 2023, and the reality is it hasn't stopped. Gamaliel was right. What has happened in that day has continued to thunder in hearts throughout history. This is true in my life, and this is true in many of your lives as well. The gospel has implanted in hearts and profoundly shaped the direction of people's lives. 
And so the invitation is to join in, to join in the advancement of the gospel. The reality is we won't be able to stop it. Countries have tried, political regimes have tried and failed. You cannot stop the gospel. No one, no country, no amount of money is going to do it. And what we're going to do in the book of Acts is we're going to read for 23 more chapters how God's Spirit powerfully moved and cannot be stopped. It won't happen. And so I want to lay this call on us this morning. Whether you consider yourself a Christian today or you're not a Christian, I want to invite, invite us to join this unstoppable movement to invest more of who we are in Jesus' church. And this isn't about building Center Church's brand, okay? And I know some of you are going to get some Center Church swag this morning, or you already have, and that's great, okay? But this is about making your life count for something bigger than yourselves, bigger than your family. Jesus is the only reliable investment. The way this text pictures this, all of this is freedom. We see dead things come to life. We see imprisoned people set free. So let me provide one example from this story where I see this. In verse 26, we read of the captain and the officers afraid of being stoned by people. Okay, so these individuals are enslaved. They're imprisoned, in a sense, by the fear of man. This was not the case for Jesus' followers. Jesus' followers were threatened, they were beaten, they were arrested, they were imprisoned, and despite all of this, they continued to do what Jesus had freed them to do, to speak of Jesus and his resurrection. And when they were beaten, and when they were imprisoned, how did they respond to all of this? It says, rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. No one should want to suffer. There's something twisted if we want to suffer. But to suffer for Jesus' name, to know that it was worth it, to know that you've invested yourself in something that won't stop and won't die, that's worth rejoicing. This is freedom. This is what I long for us at Center Church, an experience of God's goodness and his power that so transforms us that we can throw off these realities of our lives, our culture, that we're so concerned with what people think of us, so concerned with building our 401k, like, yes, be wise, be prudent, but let's not give ourselves to this. This isn't the greatest thing in our lives. Jesus is. His resurrection. He wants to take dead people and make them alive. That's true for us. It's true for our neighbors and our coworkers who are far from Jesus as well. It's true for our kids and their friends as well. So we typically end our sermons with gospel application. Okay? 
We, we want you to know it's not about who we are. It's not about what we've done. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is only about Jesus and what he's done. And so typically, you know, we've got gospel application. We're sending you out. Here's what Jesus has done for you. But this morning, I'm not going to do gospel application, okay? I'm going to ask us to stand, and I'm going to pray for us. And that's how we're going to end our time together this morning.